Hi, I'm Rachel Monteleone and welcome to Kittypedia, the podcast. I'm not an expert. However, I do speak with them with the view of providing you with expert information and advice to help you be the best parent that you can be. Together, let's give children the life they deserve and a positive future. Hello and welcome. Well, every generation has the hope that the legacy we leave our children and the state of the world that they live in is one that is bigger and better than the one that we lived in before. Now, we aspire to leave the world a better place for our children and for their children's children, and that, in fact, we're giving them the best chance to live the life that they deserve and a positive future. However, this is slightly questionable in the current state that the world is in at the moment. Of course, the children um, of this generation are experiencing things that we we didn't experience at all. Now, disappointingly, the stats on childhood obesity, mental health conditions, self-harm and suicide are greater than ever before. Now, did you know that almost 50% of the factors that determine children's psychological well-being and happiness come from the environments in which they are raised and exposed to? to. So this does tell us that we do have the power to positively influence our children's lives and we can do our bit to help raise a mentally fit generation. So to help explain how we can do this, we welcome our special guest and a beautiful and incredible human being I have so much respect for, Kari Sutton. Now Kari is in uh, in fact an expert in fostering children's positive mental health. Now she's helped over 25,000 children parents and educators with evidence-based strategies, tools and approaches, as well as common sense tips to help kids stop worrying so much and to help manage their anxiety, which as we know, so many children need help with these days. Now her expertise has made her an in-demand conference speaker, author, consultant, wanting to foster children's positive mental health. And she launched her second book, which is what we're here to discuss today, Raising a Mentally Fit Generation in November 2020 last year. Now, welcome back. How are you? I'm well, Rachel. It's great to be back. Now, there is no doubt uh, there is an escalating mental health crisis facing uh, our kids, which is absolutely heartbreaking. Now, having worked as a teacher um, and guidance counsellor for the last 25 years, I would just love to know um, holistically, I mean, how have you actually seen this dramatic rise in anxiety disorders and depression and suicide that is affecting our kids? It it was almost stealthy at the beginning. So if you think, if I was thinking back 20 years ago when I started teaching, 25 years ago more now, and we didn't notice it as much, but over the most probably the past 15 to 20 years, there had uh, 15, at least 15, 10 to 15 years, you look back and think we have seen more, whether it's with, and I don't know what's causing, but whether it's with social media, the angst that goes with that, but there have been more anxiety disorders, more self-harm, more real um and the hardest part is when real depression, I've seen children as young as nine who are clinically depressed and it breaks my heart. And you just think, you know, this is, something's going wrong. We've been, something's been happening and we haven't picked it up soon enough because ultimately, I guess, what worries me is that if they start developing these things and at the moment, 
the diagnosable, there's one in seven diagnosed young Australians and the statistics around the world. So if you looked at Canada and the US, very similar statistics, one in five to one in seven young people are diagnosed with a mental health or mental illness, a mental health disorder. And if we didn't look at diagnoses, they'd most probably it would be closer to one in four that suffer with either heightened anxiety, um, all the other sorts of things. And, and this is what concerns me because if they've got that then and it starts then, what's gonna what's it gonna be like in their adulthood? What what does that mean for them? What does that grow into? Mm. Now, please tell me about this book. Tell me why did you write it? And tell me all about it. Here, here's a copy. Of uh, thank you. And I wrote it, I guess, why I was writing it or why I decided to write it was because I was sick of being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I get. I really wanted to help empower parents as well as educators, early childhood educators, particularly in childcare centres and kindergartens, as well as parents to say, there are things we can do instead of picking up the broken pieces at the bottom of the cliff let's start putting the strong fences at the top. And what do those strong fences look like? What are the tools and skills that we need to be teaching our children from as young in their early childhood years, as young as possible? How can we start developing these tools and skills so they don't get to the point where they are struggling with these things so much so that it impacts on their even willingness to live? And as, as the book um, states at the, at the front, to the people that have um, given you a, a, a forward on it, I'm just going to read a quote that, that is at the, on the front of the book. In this book, Kari presents practical advice for how parents can help their children to foster and de- develop the crucial skills required for resilience. And she does it in a way that's easy to read and easy to apply. Um, so these are really science-based tools and strategies um, to build resilience and well-being in children. Is, is, is that what yeah. the, the book is about? That's It is. It's a toolkit. Hopefully that's what I'm giving families and that's what it was written for. It was written um, from my experience being a parent and parenting and as well as my experience as a teacher and a guidance counsellor, but it's something people can dip in and out of. It's not, you don't have to read it all in one sitting. There's It's broken into components and there's also things called get fit now at the end of each chapter. So there's a summary in a nutshell and then activities that are are really easy to do. I don't want to put anything more on already busy parents. So it's just things to look at and go, how could I incorporate this in my daily life? And you don't have to do all 10 things at once. What I say to families is pick one, choose okay. one that you want to do and focus maybe for a month and then look and see how it goes. So as you just alluded to, there are 10 components to mental fitness mentioned in your book. Could you maybe just go through and explain what some of them are then? That would yeah, be great. So- If we were looking at it, uh, one of the things I talk about first is brain basics. So Mm -hmm. understanding, helping our children understand their brains because I use a hand model. It's used by Dan Siegel and a lot of other people, but we talk about this is the front of our brain, which is right here, the prefrontal cortex. That's where all our thinking occurs, so our rational thought. But sometimes underneath, this is the amygdala or our limbic system, and what happens is when this part drives us, if it sees something it thinks we're going to be, um, it's it's a threat to us. So for children, that could be, I'm going to look silly. People are going to think I'm dumb. People aren't going to be my friend. That 
part of the brain will be driving it because nobody, we are a herd animal. Humans are herd beings. We want to be part of a herd. We want to be accepted. We want to be liked. So if there's a threat, the amygdala takes over, the limbic system takes over and goes, you know what? Thinking brain, I've got this. This is how I'm going to respond. And it's almost an amygdala hijack, but it's talking about with our kids. And again, um, I've done this and helped them to think that um, we use water bottles. I do apologize. I can't, I've got my purple one here, but with this one, we actually use clear water bottles and we get them, um, we put glycerin, water, and glittering. And what it does is when they shake that, it shows what's happening when their brain has had an amygdala hijack, that their brain can't think clearly. So what they need to do is actually sit and do some breathing or calm down and then they can watch the glitter settle and when their brain is clearer they get to think clearer because the big part of their brain is taken back over so it's again it there's that strategy in there it talks about those sorts of things it says teach your children about the brain how it works how emotions work um, and, and what it means because if the children understand that they actually need to get some good sleep They've got to drink lots of water. So it's not a preachy book, but it's telling them about, you know, having good food, getting exercise, breathing fresh air. These are the things that take care of our brains because we want to know from a young age that our children are actually taking care of their brains because their brains have to last them their whole lives. And it's instilling good habits early. Mm -hmm. So, and you've mentioned um, that the phrase mental fitness a few times. So I would love to know what is mental fitness and of course, how can it um, help benefit our children? Mental fitness, if you, we were talking about mental illness before and depression, anxiety, self-harm and other mental health disorders. When we talk about mental health in society, we often immediately go say, oh, somebody has some mental health problem. It's actually, somebody actually has a mental illness or mental ill health. But when we use the term mental health, we often go to mental ill health first. We don't actually think of a healthy mental health, if that makes sense. So why I like the term, Paula Robinson um, did her PhD and I was studying with Paula on mental fitness and she said it's actually a proactive term. Just like we can stay physically fit and help our kids to be physically fit, we mm. can help our children to be mentally fit. And what does that mean? It actually means that there are tools and skills that they can use to take care of their mental health and well-being. So whether it's about being more optimistic, understanding how to manage and regulate their emotions and behaviour, knowing about their brain. These are the things. So if we were looking at the 10 things, it's uh, it's understanding brain basics, or that's what we call it, um, then cultivating optimism because having an optimistic attitude, it's not about being Pollyanna or thinking everything's going to be okay. It's actually saying, you know what, I have hope for the future. I'm, I'm looking at it with an optimistic attitude. So I don't always assume that everything's going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's about giving our kids these tools and skills to critically understand what's going on in their brain because sometimes they can be saying things to themselves or self-talk and that's not really the reality. So they may be going, oh, you know what, nothing works out my way, I'm always last, I don't ever do maths well or those sorts of things. The belief so system. Yes. If that's their self-talk, they're then going to create that belief system which is actually going to turn into their reality. Yes. And so it's understanding how can we help our children with to give them the tools and skills they need. It's like giving them a tool belt so they know 
I can use this at this time. I can use my strength of, because we talk about um, one of the 10 components is recognising children's strengths. They may have a strength of humour or a strength of curiosity. And how can you use that strength? How can you become more curious about this situation to help you? Beautiful. So the question is, how can mental fitness then impact a child's mental health? Is it about developing that strong foundation of a a positive belief structure for them to base their beliefs on and for them to be able to build their life? So with mental fitness, just like being physically fit can help us have a more active life and a more healthy life, being mentally fit can help our psychological and emotional well-being. And what I mean by that is if if kids learn how to make friends, how to regulate their emotions or understand their emotions and go, you know what, I'm feeling really angry at the moment, like they, they might take time to close their eyes and center themselves and go, you know what, I know that just because I'm angry, angry words don't have to come out of my mouth. Now, this is, we would be teaching if we're looking at early childhood and starting in early childhood, we start teaching them these things when they're little. So we actually say things like, I can see you're really angry because he stomped on your sandcastle, but it's not okay to go and push him over or punch him or bite him. So what else could we do? You can say, I don't like that, stop or we give them the tools and skills because what we're teaching them is alternate ways of behaving because what's happened is in that sandcastle incident, they felt threatened. Something they built was done so they have an emotional response. The amygdala takes over, amygdala hijack, the prefrontal cortex, their thinking part of their brain that says not a good idea to punch somebody or push somebody over. No, woohoo! it's an amygdala hijack. It takes over, goes, he ruined my sandcastle, bang, And what we're doing is scaffolding those skills. So we're actually teaching them how to be a good friend, how to manage their emotions or understand that it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to do this behavior. So regulating their behavior. And what could we do differently next time? Mm -hmm. So it's about teaching them these skills and going, you know what, you have these tools, you know what to do when you get angry. And yes, sometimes our amygdala takes over or we get a brain that's not thinking clearly, but Mm -hmm. what do we do when our brain doesn't think clearly? We might take a few deep breaths or we might jump up and down on a trampoline. Sorry, I'm wriggling my camera. Um, We might do these things because it gives them something else they can do rather than performing a behaviour that's not socially appropriate. Perfect. So in saying that then, what is the difference then between mental fitness and just resilience? I believe mental fitness is actually the precursor to resilience. So what I mean by that, resilience is actually uh, the ability to bounce back or work through things to actually, we all displayed resilience in 2020. The whole Australian society and around the world we've actually come through it. We've come through it together and we've used the skills and tools that we need to get work through certain situations that can be very tricky and tire- and, and also very um, emotionally draining. And resilience is like that. It's not only bouncing back, but it's actually being able to look at and almost use the tools or use that experience and going, you know what, I've learned from this. I am resilient. I have gotten through it. So what I see mental fitness as is actually saying you need these skills and tools of mental fitness. So the gratitude, the mindfulness, 
the optimism, having an optimistic attitude. If you weren't an opti- didn't have a more of an optimistic attitude, and it's a way of thinking. So pessimism and optimism, you're neither one or the other. It's actually a continuum of thought and an outlook and how you see the world. It's having those skills. If you weren't as optimistic, you wouldn't be as resilient because it would be that you get into almost a pit of despair and those negative emotions spiral downwards. So when I look at saying what is resilience, mental fitness and the tools of optimism, gratitude, mindfulness, understanding and managing our emotions, recognise and playing to our strengths, knowing about our brains and how we can take care of them, all of these things actually build resilience in children. So they need to be there beforehand before our children can become resilient. And also understanding we have to allow our children to fail. Because life is not always about getting what you want. So having these things, that will help them become more resilient if they've had these experiences. You know, what an incredible uh, and yet crucial toolkit to be able to give children uh, to be able to, and metaphorically speaking, uh, as you were saying all of that, I was thinking it's almost like, you know, as we pack their backpacks to go to school every day with their lunch and everything else, this is like the backpack of life of putting all of these crucial skills um, uh, into uh, and lessons into their backpack of life as we set them out on their journey of life and and uh, to go out and, and to live in the world. And it's a little bit like it's just as important as to put their lunch <laughs> into the backpack as they go to school. It, this is just as important for the backpack of life. I've just made that up. I love that analogy. (laughs) I I, I seriously love that analogy. Thank you, because it really is a backpack of tools. It's putting these things in so that our children, and I think that's what we're seeing a lot in schools today, is that children don't know how to actually talk back to their big anxiety monster that's scaring them, is actually, no, that's my anxiety talking. what that is as opposed to it it being negative self-talk and then in a negative spiral down is understanding the difference between the two and this is the resilience that you're talking about and to be able to have a child to understand that from a young age is an unbelievably important but uh, critical uh, like a vitally important tool for them to be able to live a really positive life for themselves Um, and then the people that they're around also. It's not just their life, but how they influence their friends in their social circle also. So this is so important. It's positive ripples that spread out. But interesting you talked about negative self-talk. I think that for me is something that I struggled with and uh, because it can be seeded from anywhere. For me, uh, it was when I was 13 and I was told, you have fat thighs. And I was now was told by a friend of mine at school And what I took that on as a belief, I assumed that it was true. I didn't actually, because my friends didn't say it wasn't true at the time. I didn't go home because no teen girl goes home and says that. But this shows you the power of belief. That then impacted everything I did, whether I went to the beach, what bathing suit or togs I wore or swimming costume I wore, um, what I wore to my high school formal or the, the graduation even after school, because I would pick up clothes in Myers or whatever store it was in and go, oh, you can't wear that. You've got fat thighs. From one comment. From one comment. And that's why I say to teachers, be really careful. Teachers and parents, be really careful about what you say to your children because particularly from the in the early childhood years, from birth to around eight, children don't have filters 
They can't go, oh, you know what, mum's having a really bad day and she didn't mean that I'm a little rug rat who can't do anything. Um, if it comes out and often, and you think about this, Rach, what the negative things you've said, if you think back and go, where did it come from? It frequently comes from teachers who've said, oh, yeah, you're never going to be any good at that. Or from parents who it may have been a throwaway comment that they didn't mean at the time that they were in a rush or something like that. And as children, we take it to heart. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is those beliefs actually get, it's like playing a CD or scratching it in over and over again. It's that self-fulfilling prophecy that goes over in their head. And what we can do as parents and carers and educators I talked to Martin Seligman. I was studying with him in 2003 and four, and I was observing that children were starting to have a more negative conversation about themselves and that there was, I was seeing more depression and anxiety starting. And Seligman said to me, Professor said to me, you know, Carrie, if we can catch children's negative self-talk when they first start to talk in those first few years, we can halve the rates of depression. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, because what's going on is we're teaching them how to challenge that. And the reason it's so crucial at that age is because that's when they'll say it. When they're first starting to learn to talk, then you'll hear them. And it may be a muttering as they go back, oh, I don't, I can't do that. I'm not good at that. And you pick up and go, hey, I heard you say, what What evidence is that like? Those are the sorts of things. So we're not actually, we're speaking to them in age-appropriate ways, but we're actually getting them to challenge those thinking and that thought, that thought because if we don't do it then, what happens is it becomes embedded in their mindset and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and that then impacts. Like my fat thighs commented, until I decided most probably in my early 20s, that I didn't want a 13-year-old girl running my life anymore and having that, I had to change that wiring then. So it's much better that we get in early so we change that wiring when they're little. It's the saying, isn't it, that famous quote, and I don't know who it is that that it's from, so um, I'm sorry I can't quote them at the moment, but um, the way we speak to children becomes their inner inner voice. Um, yes. which is exactly what you're saying. So, I mean, what I'm hearing, the, the effects, if childhood mental illness is left untreated, my understanding is the conditions can severely influence their just their development overall, their educational attainments, um, and just their overall potential and possibility to live a fulfilling and positive and produ- productive life, would you say? Uh, it wor- That's part of the reason why I wrote the book as well, Rach, because it really worries me. If you look at our incarceration rates, so people in jail, juvenile justice, um, involvement with the police, dropping out of school, frequently it's kids who have had um, traumatic backgrounds and adverse childhood experiences that have impacted their negative thinking about themselves, that have impacted their thinking and behaviour around the world and that have impacted their psychological and emotional well-being because little people who feel safe and loved and secure and have all of the really positive experiences and understand how other people feel. So I've had empathy developed because it's understanding and it's that empathy that we can teach kids and how to have that empathy that leads them away from hurting other people. So if they don't have that background, then yes, it is going to significantly impact the rest of their lives. And once children have been in the juvenile justice system and been incarcerated, there is more likely a chance that they will go back into that system in the future, which then impacts their whole life. Mm. 
And overall, then, I mean, my understanding is that you've got a, a very passionate view that um, a lot of children are struggling to develop resilience um, naturally themselves also. So what, why is it that you think that? Really good question. And it's one, when you asked, why did I write the book and what's it been over the past 20 years, this would be one of the things. If you look at, for me, I look at children now who develop anxiety or who are developing anxiety a lot of the time and who aren't particularly resilient. And what concerns me is what's going on, like really tapping into or not digging into and asking them lots of personal questions, but understanding what's happening for them, because all behavior is a form of communication. And what's been going on is that often we see everybody, and again, I hate laying this at the feet of schools, but everybody wins a prize. That's not life. Not everybody can come first. Not everybody can get a prize. Um, At birthday parties, the same thing happens. I know, Rach, you and I most probably grew up when we were playing past the personal, there was only one prize and that was at the end. Now everybody's got to get a prize or they cry. Look, no, this is not... Uh, this is not what we're looking at. We've got to actually allow our children to feel discomfort and sit with them in that discomfort and go, you know, yeah, sometimes it's a real pain. It really hurts when you get passed over or when you're not picked for captain or you don't make the team. But what happens is when they learn that I can sit with those feelings, it can feel really uncomfortable and I'm not going to die or I don't want to, like that there is, I come out the other side, that's when we're building their resilience. So understanding that, allowing them to fail. I've had people as parents come to me and say, oh, you know, could you just extend the time for an assignment a bit longer? No, your child has known that it's had, that they've had this long to do that assignment they should have been doing it. They have lots of time at school and some time at home. Oh, but you know, this happened. Now, if it was an extenuating circumstance, absolutely, I would give them extra time. So if a family member had passed away or they'd been really sick or something, but if it's just the fact that they couldn't organize themselves, no, because we need to understand that in life, there are deadlines. Mm. As Bill Gates has sometimes said, you don't come out of school and expect everything to be handed to you on a silver platter. Otherwise, you are not going to develop that resilience. So developing resilience means understanding that things aren't always going to go my way and being willing to sit with that discomfort. And the problem we've got is that when kids haven't got that resilience, they then start getting very anxious because parents will often, and, and again, it's not... I'm not saying every parent does this, but they'll come in and scoop them up and save them. Oh, you know what? No, you don't have to go to school on that day. Oh, no, you don't have to do that. Actually, the real world says that sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do and you're not always going to be there to save your child or to to pick them up and scoop them away from trouble. So they have to learn how to deal with it themselves. So if I was to ask you then, you know, what is your best tip for, I guess, future-proofing the next generation in everything that you've just said just then, is it to, I'm guessing, um, to allow our children to fail and to and through that failure to build their resilience? I don't know. Is that, is that what you're saying? Add, well, if you looked at it, if you were asking me what is the best, you've described it, is that 
allow children to feel discomfort. Now, I'm not saying put them in a an environment, like don't needle your children, don't tease them, don't be sarcastic. This is not, it's actually allowing them to feel discomfort. And the reason we don't like doing that as parents is because if you think back to our, so the brain model, right here in the front of our brain, we have something called in the prefrontal cortex, it's called mirror neurons. So as parents, carers, educators, if we see a child that we care for falling out of a tree, hurting themselves, these mirror neurons actually, we feel the same sort of, or our body feels pain. That's how we develop empathy through, through the mirror neurons. And what happens is when you see your children falling out with friends, not getting a good grade, that their pain and their discomfort actually comes to be ours. What we need to do is allow them to fail, allow them to feel those big discomforts, but also scaffold how they deal with it. So teach them the skills of emotional intelligence. Help them understand this is what you're feeling. At the moment, I can see your face. It looks like you're disappointed or are you angry or are you confused? What's going on? Because these are the feelings and help them deal with those feelings. So not only allowing them to fail and feel that discomfort, but the other one added on to that is the emotional intelligence. Build those skills because that is what if you uh, so Mark McCrindle has just put out a book Generation Alpha and he talks about the generation that's that the really young kids at the moment so from 0 to 11 or 10 they're the first ones that have grown up mainly with iPads iPhones on technology and what he's saying though is yes the world is going to look very different in the future but the critical skills that they will need are the people skills the empathy, the emotional intelligence, the ability to manage their emotions so that they don't have outbursts and and negatively impact others. Those are the skills. Knowing how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with big emotions, that emotional intelligence, that's what will actually benefit kids in the future. Yes. There's all this technology. I was talking to um, some of our staff a few weeks ago and there's this technology now that they can even write articles. Um, but the, the future of journalism is now even questionable. Um, wow. And, and so the whole que- the whole discussion on the phone, phone call we were having is the fact that at the end of the day, yes, technology is going to continue to, you know, to be more and more predominant in our life. But one thing technology doesn't have is, is empathy. Um, and I think you, you just articulated that, and that's the, the the key importance that we need to continue developing in our children. So, um, and I'd love to know because you work with so many families. You know, what are some of the strategies that you're finding uh, that have worked, and the tools that you're implementing with your clients and that they're using um, with their children that we can learn from? Is there any other real life examples? I'd love to know. I guess. Yeah, when you look at it, it's actually about whether it's so it's, uh, and I've got a triangle there, um, triangle breathing. So that's breathing for three, hold for three, breathe out for three. And that's, again, about the mindfulness. And I'm not saying they have to use that, but a mindfulness app. So often as a family, if, you're, if we're not sitting around the table or we're sitting in front of the TV, we don't eat mindfully. Have those conversations around the dinner table. What went well today? What didn't go so well? How did you handle that? So uh, make sure those lines of connection are created because ultimately one of the things, and I talk about it, is that at the last one is making those memories, having those rituals, having those routines, and it can be really little things. One of the families, uh, a mum came to me and she said, you know, the thing that I loved about my childhood is when 
we had these, um, mum used to cut up this food and we'd all sit in front of the TV and watch it together. And she said, when I talked to my mother about that, she thought she'd actually failed because those were the nights where she was just, as a single mum, she was exhausted. She just didn't know what else to do. And we got baked beans on toast or crackers and cheese, but they were some of my favourite memories we spent together as a family. So don't underestimate the power of connection, the power of routine, of ritual, of things you can do. And as a family unit, whether it be a single fa- single mum, a divided family, whatever it is, have those routines and rituals because that's what will give our children the base. Another one is really understand what is what are you experiencing? What does it feel like? So talking about emotions and allowing them to express, so allowing you to express emotions. Now, I'm not saying go and hit a wall, but if you're angry, say, you know what? I'm really cross right at the moment, really angry. I'm going to give myself a timeout because I don't want to say things I don't mean. I'm going to my bedroom. I'll be back in five, 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever, it, but just leave me because I'm really angry. Because what we're saying is we're showing that we get really angry as well and that we have ways of dealing with that. Or if you've been disappointed, you know, yeah, I was really, and again, not laying this on four-year-olds because they don't really explaining that mummy's really angry and also saying if you've used crosswords, so again, and I'm talking like I'm talking to a four-year-old, but if you use crosswords, I'm sorry, I use crosswords. That's not okay. In our family, I don't use crosswords. Mum, I'm really sorry about that. I shouldn't have done that. Um, and I talk about that in the book. I say my Mitchell and I were at the shops. At the end of the day, shops were closing. I was in a rush. I needed to get something. He wanted to look at something. It looked like Mad Max 3. It looked like World War 3. It's not all over the face. He was angry. He escalated. I escalated. And finally, I used And we will go, you know, because, again, I was embarrassed about what was happening. And I actually, when I got in the car, he was in tears. I was in tears. But I apologised because I said, that's not how I want to relate. I'm so sorry I used those words. I actually should have thought about the situation beforehand and gone, you know what, this can wait. Like, is it really worth dragging him to the shops or doing those things? Because I didn't get what I needed to get done anyway. So if I had to summarise, be real, be authentic, don't be afraid to show emotions, but also show how you deal with them. Because, for example, I Mitchell knew I was, uh, again, he would have been mostly in early, it's so tween, 10 or 11, he knew I'd been getting ready for a job interview and I went for it and he saw me getting dressed up that day and then I came home and found out I didn't get it and he said, you look really sad. I said, I am, but you know what? I am really disappointed. I could have, I tried my hardest, but it didn't go my way. I'm going to go have a bubble bath because that was something I did. So it's using the strategies and understanding and going, you know, really thinking and going, what am I demonstrating for my kids? Am I demonstrating kindness? Am I demonstrating empathy? Am I, and how do we speak? How do we speak to people? How do you speak to the barista who serves you your coffee? I'll have that, oh, thanks, ta, or whatever. Do It's the way we role model because, and also how do you take care of yourself? That's one of the other things I say to families. This isn't, this book isn't just for kids. It's actually looking and going, how do you talk to yourself? Because kids will pick up on that. If you say, oh, I'm just useless at maths, they'll pick up on that. They'll put themselves down as well. 
Yeah, I know. It's there is so much. I was trying to cram in everything in. I, know. I do, apologize. and that's just the thing because there is so much value in um in the book and everything. So I think it's just best that everyone maybe just grabs themselves a copy. Oh, I, think. <laughs> I think that's probably the best thing that they should do. Um, and I, I love a hard a hard like a book in the sense when I read books, I I love to um underline them and I love to be able to sort of mark the pages where I have my biggest lessons and those types of things. And I think nothing can ever beat the feeling of actually holding a book. I mean, I, I know that a lot of us listen to audio books and those types of things, but uh, yeah, there's nothing quite like holding a, a book in your hand. And um, it's just and that's what I say to people, feel free. It's it, I said it at the beginning, write mm. all over it, use it as a manual, use yep. it however you want. It's just picking one tool. It doesn't, and I, as I said, it doesn't have to be an overwhelming task. Start with something small if it's gratitude or saying what we're grateful for three because that the one thing if you can do this with your kids to send them off to sleep at night whether they be teenagers or and teenagers maybe not so much but encourage your teenager to do this as well with young kids so from zero all the way through to tweens like 10 11 and 12 even if you tuck them in say what are three good things so remember three good things that happened today because what we're actually doing is priming their brain for sleep and what we want them to do is go to bed with really positive thoughts in their minds because if they're anxious about things or think if that's what they're worried about, that's what they're going to dream about. So try and get them at night. What are we grateful for? What are three good things in our lives? What went well? And, yeah, that's one of the, thing, one of the tips I try and get parents to do to start with. Well, I guess if you were to summarise your key messages for anyone watching and listening today, um, and, and I, I didn't even get to ask you about the article which you had um, written, which we will, all of this will be embedded in the uh, in the show notes, of course, the link through to the article um, and all of those things. But if, if I guess anyone was to walk away with some key messages from our chat today, what would they be? The key message is that we can teach kids from early childhood age, we can teach them to be mindful, to be more optimistic, how to be kind and empathic. These are skills. These are tools. We can teach them how to have emotional intelligence. We just have to take the time to do it. This is the future generation. And what I see exactly what you said, We this will ripple out because if you start teaching your kids this, that's how they're going to teach their kids and their kids are going to teach their kids. So this is, we can touch the future in so many ways. If we can just help our give, as you said, Rach, I love that term. We can put these tools in their backpack as children. And then that's how they'll start to parent their kids. Mm -hmm. And that will create a cycle that goes on for generations. Which is exactly in the, the mission statement for Kittypedia. Um, that's in our vision and mission statement overall is the fact that they we want to be able to sort of give, oh, first of all, it starts with the parent. The parent needs to be, I guess, the best version of this, themselves. So we need to give the parent the tools, hence the book, hence books like this, hence, you know, key thought leaders and experts like yourself. So we start with the parent that they need to be able to have the tools to be all they can be. So they, the next part is that they can then give children the life that they deserve, but in turn, so they can then pass it on to their children and their children's children for generations to come. And that's how we do build a bigger, better Australia. So everything is in true alignment. Um, I'm in absolute or of all of your work and everything that you do and support you wholeheartedly. So thank you so much for your time today. If people, um, I should say when people are ready to, to, to <laughs> grab a copy of your book, whereabouts do they 
need to go. CarrieSutton.com or Google Raising a Mentally Fit Generation and it will take you right there. Awesome. And we'll have all of those um, those links in the show notes and, of course, in the, um, the footnote of um, the article also. As always, thank you so much for your time today and I can't wait for the opportunity to chat with you again. But congratulations on all your incredible work. Thank you, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having me, Rachel. It was a pleasure. Right. Take care. Speak soon. Right. Bye. Bye. I'm Rachel Monteleone and you've been listening to Kittypedia, the podcast. You can have full access to Kittypedia by visiting our website at kittypedia.com.au or following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. We're all here to help make the world a better place for our children and for generations to come. You can start today by helping us reach other parents by going to Apple Podcast, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Thank you for listening and be sure to give my love to the kids. Bye.